time slows to honeyed gold in the steamed up bathroom. You feel Babushka at your elbow and know not to turn. Mammy Water, seeing what our young one needs but cannot say, leaves the bath's edge to join them by the sink, lifts the comb of their hand to our young one's head. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we switch out the newborn baby with a fairy changeling and hope no one notices when it starts gently levitating. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations. Stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and gracing us with their poetic presence today are Remy Graves and Fiona Benson. Hello, guys. Hello, hello. Hi. Remy Graves is a London-based poet and drummer. A former Barbican Young poet, Remy's work has been commissioned by St Paul's Cathedral, Visit England and BBC Radio 4. Past projects include a residency at Croydon Library with Spine Festival and Remy was digital poet in residence with 1215 Today and The Poetry School. Remy was a 2017 National Poetry Day ambassador and has performed at Cheltenham Literature Festival, The Tate Modern and more. Fiona Benson's pamphlet was Faber New Poets 1, and her debut Bright Travellers received the Seamus Heaney Prize and the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. Her second collection, Vertigo and Ghosts, won the Roehampton Poetry Prize and the Forward Poetry Prize. She lives in Devon with her husband and their two daughters. First up, we have Remy. What story have you chosen? I've chosen less of a story and more of a figure. So mm. my person is Mammy Water, who is a water deity, a water goddess. She or they exist in loads of different kind of stories. So you've got them in West African culture as this kind of figure to be venerated and kind of to be worshipped, to get riches. Sometimes people um, worship her for fertility, for help with any difficulties. And she's this really interesting character that also exists in kind of Afro-Cuban religions, in the Caribbean, also in Latin America. So she's this kind of figure that spreads across the Atlantic. And I was just really interested in exploring gender through her presence and just kind of using yeah this kind of idea of someone to pray to in a moment of need and trying to bring that into a slightly different context um, in a modern day context and kind of for younger people so this is called swim good and frank is singing i'm about to drive in the ocean i'm gonna try to swim from something bigger than me the young one is spinning head thrown back their arms open wide, palms outstretched, trying to cup the air, to feel the water Frank is singing about swimming in. Good, good. They spin, head up, eyes shut, messy steps to keep from falling and to keep up the momentum, to keep the dizziness coming and hurtle them towards the heart of the song, the heart of their hurt. And this, and this, and this, until the song ripples towards its end, with the timid shimmer of waves collapsing into white on the shore, spilling over themselves like an underage drinker at the threshold of the house party. Song done, and our young one is a heap on the floor, heart beating in their bound chest, Frank's plea, don't die, don't die, cascading in their ears. The room spins with no sign of letting up, our young one catching the breath thrown out of them by the spin, 
one hand on their ribcage, rising and falling. They are practised at this. When the world outside is a whir, a dizzying blow of sharp gazes, seeing is a feat, looking a fight against harsh light and prying eyes eager to unlock the chest of you. Our young one unclasps their eyes to a room finally slowing down. Their unmade bed appears at each rotation. The bright light of their laptop in the corner flashes like a slow alarm. Stillness now, and in front of them lies a creature, all scales and glitter where legs should be, all light dancing to invisible music on the tail of them, throwing a shimmer onto the empty where our young one's mirror used to be. The creature's strangeness, a bare torso and proud breasts, a golden wide tooth comb jutting out instead of a hand, the kind that would kiss the curl of the young one's hair. And all the while the creature's face is spinning, a constant blur, once an angled thing with cheekbones sharp enough to cut glass, next a rounded visage, the top lip buttered by a moustache, and no matter the shape of the face or the length of the hair, ears always pierced and mouth forever open. Our young one's breath is a shallow tide, as a kind of language falls from the creature's mouth like rain, like golden snow, a ribbon of sound. Nothing our young one has ever heard before, yet they glean the meaning, understand the pull of want coming from the stranger's mouth. Our young one rushes to the kitchen, grabs a Coke and a banana, places the offerings beside the creature's shimmering tail, their fear softened into a quiet desire for approval. Mammy Water grabs the bottle, pours the Coke into their open, spinning mouth, swallows the banana whole. Our young one watches on somehow moored by the creature's hunger. The ribbon sounds. Why did you call me? I needed the dance. I didn't know I was calling you. What do you need? They are thinking of what to say to the god they had not called, did not know they needed. But because the body also speaks its own language, they start the particular dance, twist of legs, knocking knees of a person desperate to piss. Our young one dashes to the bathroom, a slammed door for privacy, yet Mammy Water follows, passing through the door as if it were water, into the dark box room built like a ship's toilet. What are you doing? The words spill out of our young one as they empty themselves in the dark. Mammy Water sits silent on the edge of the bath during the private act. A grimace on their spinning mouth at all the hiding, the half-living of the young one who called them here without their throat, who summoned them with the weight of their moving body alone. Show me what you need. Our young one is at the sink now, sudding their hands all foam and frustration, wanting privacy, needing help, not knowing how to speak of either or the memories of bathrooms in shopping centres and cinemas, the shocked faces at the threshold, the question mark gazes, the trembling mind as the bladder speaks, the weighing up of needs, the holding, the holding, the holding. The round mirror 
A porthole throwing the dark room back onto itself throws our young one back into the material of their body, the tight of their chest, the elastic hugging the bridge of their ribs, a pressure like reassurance. The binder they bought in a swell of excitement at its deep brown nude tone, the comfort of its camouflage. Towed by Mammy Water's power and the pull of their instruction, our young one searches for themselves in the pitch black. And what can you see in a mirror in the dark, but all you have kept hidden in the light? They caress the smooth iridescence of their skin. Imagine the tones of browns and oranges that jump out when the light hits just right. They feel for the curving corners of their mouth, which give a smile even when they are not smiling. Even when their heart is humming, don't die, don't die, don't die. Mammy Water, seeing what our young one needs but cannot say, leaves the bath's edge to join them by the sink, lifts the comb of their hand to our young one's head, softly pulls at the curls springing from their scalp, the gentle scratch and tug, then the bounce of hair reveling in care. This quiet devotion, as our young one's hands caress their flattening chest in meditative repetition, the swell of their breasts disappearing with each stroke and tug of the comb. Soon, the binder is loose, where a moment ago there was a hug, now there is breath and space, a weight lifted and light around them. Though the naked bulb swinging from the ceiling is emitting nothing bright, our young one is surrounded by a glow. It spills from their eyes, ricochets off Mammy Water's tail, the heavy around them and the heavy inside them beginning to lift. The two of them, now able to see each other in that porthole mirror, able to see the body and the being, the purple fruit of relief, a smile opening like a blossoming flower on our young one's face, no longer at sea. Mammy Water stands in the wisdom of her low-hanging breasts and the singing ribbon spilling from her spinning mouth. Can you see now? Some years later, our young one, not so young, sits on a pebble beach somewhere, staring out at the sea's vastness, its swelling and thinning, its sheer disinterest in fixedness, teasing the sand's edge with every ripple. They let the wind kiss their bare chest, let the air tend to the healed wounds left by the world's eyes on them like a harpoon. And out on the mirage of the sea's horizon, they see the golden flicker of something like a comb. They squint at the shape already disappearing and remember how Mammy Water moored them to a body they wanted to escape. They breathe in the salt air, drink the liquid sun, anchored and glad not to have been left to swim from themselves. That was absolutely stunning. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. What was it about Mummy Water that drew you to her or them as a way of exploring gender? I guess there's two things. The idea that she's half human half fish which I completely forgot to say at the beginning but yes she's kind of a west you know western view would say she's a mermaid and there's questions about who came first but she's this kind of in-between figure and for me that immediately just made me think of 
gender, fluidity, non-binariness, however we want to speak of it. And then I also found different representations of her in lots of different cultures where sometimes they seem more masculine and it just seemed very fluid. And I thought this idea of water, it just all felt like, oh, this is perfect. And also this is stuff that I'm really interested in personally. And so it just, it felt obvious that I would use her to speak about this and to explore this, yeah. Tell me more about the relationship between this figure of the young one and Mummy Water. Yeah, interestingly enough, the young one came out of nowhere. I, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna focus on Mummy Water and use their body and their physicality as a site for this kind of discussion. And then I think it was in the workshop that we did though, I was like, oh, actually, no, Mummy Water is allowing the young one to see themselves how they need to be seen and to kind of embody themselves and is actually just a kind of vehicle for them to to come into themselves and I just kind of thought oh yeah in this in this way of what would it be like to have a young person who accidentally summons Mammy Water you know is just doing their own kind of ritual of dancing to Frank Ocean which we all well I do at least <laughs> I think lots of people do <laughs> and and in that in that emotion in that swirl and in that maybe letting themselves be themselves, they summoned this this goddess or god who knows what they need. And I thought, I just thought, oh, that would be so lovely, you know, if we kind of, and maybe because I'm not rooted in a culture that is so connected to these ideas of deities, I just thought it would be so lovely to have this person just appear and be like, okay, you know, what do you need? I'm here for you. And, you know, how surreal that might be, but how day-to-day it also is or could be. Yeah, there's so much tenderness there when, like, my mortar's interacting with, like, the mm. physicality of this like young non-binary person mm. yeah I think I you know I had so many ideas of like setting it out in a river somewhere in Devon because Fee was suggesting you know what interesting different places could it be and then somehow I just felt that the intimacy of your room and your bathroom or somewhere really closed where often you feel safest is actually a really important space to kind of explore and I think then a lot of the stuff with the body and kind of some kind of vulnerability I was able to kind of look at as well because, okay, well, in this comfortable space where, I mean, they're still not 100% comfortable, but there's no other eyes on them, even though in some way their own eyes on them is also the difficulty. Mm, I love that about um, that moment when you're, when she's doing the hair Mm. or they are doing the hair. Mm. That's such an intimate kind of domestic moment, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. The the hair, that came out of the kind of actual factual elements of mammy water so they're often seen with a comb and also a watch and and the comb is like a sign of like golden kind of luxury and femininity and this kind of stuff and then it just like oh yeah okay you know let's make that interact with um with the young person and what's the tender way of doing it but that just came out because of what mammy water has in her kind of arsenal of of things yeah and Fiona how do you respond to like the figure of mammy water in this sort of kind of quite modern really like an intimate space Mm, well I love I mean I love Remy's evocation of Mummy Water the way her her, she's always moving her face is always this blur it's amazing I love how um, Remy's materialized that and the idea of this kind of ribbon coming out of her mouth I think it's really I think it's really beautiful but I, I also really identify with that sense of the kind of domestic private protected space versus um, the outside world that is is very antagonistic at the beginning of the poem, but then there's this reconciliation at the end where they're both outside, both the young person and the goddess. And I think that's really lovely, that kind of 
movement and bravery of that. And I love how kind, I just love how kind this retelling is. I think it's got so many applications, you know, not just for gender fluidity, although that's really important, but also just for general, um, the way we inhabit our bodies and how young people are so pressured to be a certain way and the way that uh, Remy's young person moves into an acceptance of the body, I think is just a really important message, yeah. I think I also didn't want it to be just this tragic thing of like gender dysphoria and struggle, struggle, struggle. Um, and I think a lot of people during lockdown, it's been really interesting of how for some people being at home and not having the world looking at them has been freeing in ways that they hadn't really noticed how oppressive other people's judgments or need to categorize them has been. And then I think with the ending, I just thought nature is there with you in a way that isn't judgmental, isn't asking anything of you, isn't asking any kind of performance. So it just felt like a, a natural. Also, I just really want to go to the sea somewhere. So I think I'll do it for myself. You're like, I just want to leave my house. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the bar is very low at this point. Exactly. I took you know, all things domestic and wild and the collision between them. I would love to go over to Fiona. Um, what what story are you rewriting for us? I rewrote Babushka, but I don't think I really modernised it in the same way that Remy did. I think um, I did keep it very folky, I'm afraid. Mm. The, the myth is that the wise men come along. She lives, you know, she lives at a crossroads in the steppe and the wise men come along and ask her to join them as they go and seek the king and she's just she's just she's just got too much to do she's got the housework to do and uh so she says no and then she, in the night she regrets it and um she takes the toys that had had belonged to her son and hurries after them but never catches up so you know the idea is that she's always leaving children little gifts at christmas and i love um i love the empathy of that that um she's not she's not saving the gifts for the one child she's giving them to all the children and i think um i think for me that encapsulates one of these truths that all children are very special and sacred and should you know have the right to play and the right to life and the right to happy childhoods and unfortunately we're still in a place in the world where that isn't happening but like remy i wanted something kind you know the idea of this being a story that you want to pass down i wanted i wanted it to be a kind story i've done a lot of writing about not kind stories and um i wanted to do something a bit different and i was thinking of our kind of kind stories and i was thinking of uh, father christmas to begin with and um also do you remember the story of the selfish giant the oscar wilde story oh, it's a yes. very kind story about the giant that accepts these children into his garden so it was that kind of story that you're told as a child kind of sitting cross-legged on the floor in assembly which is how I think I knew about Babushka and um yeah and it honors an old woman uh which I think is really important I think our culture is um does not do that and should <laughs> and uh yeah it was just a story of human empathy and kindness that I I thought I wanted to celebrate and pass on and keep in our keeping our vocabulary I suppose well I'd love it if you could treat us to a kind story okay um, I should explain that um it mentions Kaliach who is a Celtic goddess of winter 
she's kind of imagined in Scottish myth as um, throwing her hammer around so the ground freezes. So she creeps in a little bit because I like this association of old people with winter and she does creep in, but that's who she is. Babushka, one. Under the last light in a house at the edge of the village, Babushka lives alone. Her house is spick and span. She has her little cat and her chickens and her cow. In the winter there is mud, in the summer dust, but she mops and scrubs and sweeps. The kitchen slates are worn but clean, the stable freshly strewn. Cleanliness is next to godliness, no cobwebs, no sluts wool. She sits on a chair by the front door, shelling peas, ready to invite a traveller in. There's always a samovar of tea, a dish of raspberry jam, a simple meal. Winter, the pass is closed. She watches from her window the little grave she tends, lilacs in the spring, asters in the fall. Now she scatters breadcrumbs on the snow, so the birds will flit and sing above her son's deep crib. When the wise men ask her to come, she says thank you and no, there is so much to do. Two. I'm thinking of my grandma, of course. Doris, house-proud, the linoleum scoured, bored, bereaved, nipping back the curtains to watch the road. She wouldn't leave her own four walls, their safe routine. In her eighties she was given her first plush bear, and made so much of it she was given more, until she owned a cornucopia of fluffy toys. My father balked, didn't care to see his mother acting like a child. She cuddled them nonetheless eyed him, sly and defiant, over their furry heads. Grief for her dead girl, a wound she staunched, with a soft toy clutched to her shrunken chest. Doris was not alone in this. There is a market for weighted blankets, a market for dolls that replicate a newborn's size and heft. Once, at the nursing home, Claire brought in her baby niece, and the old women woke from their strange, indifferent sleep and unfurled like flowers, reaching, their faces bright and blazing for the child. They knew just how to crook her in their arms, crooned and cooed and squabbled to prolong their turn. When the girl was gone, all their little lights went out, one by one, by one. Three. What do we keep? A baby grow, a lock of hair, their teeth, their mittens or their first booties, a soft toy, a nursing shawl, a handprint on the whitewashed wall you do not clean, first word, first step the feeling of his downy head against your cheek. Babushka's husband was a carpenter, God rest his soul. On the lowest shelf, a creel, 
babushka stoops to reach, a flute, a ball, a wooden nesting doll, a yellow duck stitched out of felted wool. In the morning, she'll catch the wise men. She'll take these gifts for the child. Four. Winter is an old woman stepping over the hills, snow in her hair and a basket in her arms, dropping stones. Kaliach, necessary and honoured crone, welcome when you come. Five. The dirt road that leads out of the village is crisp and frozen hard, ice in the ruts like bottle glass. Babushka shrugs and hurries to catch up. The little skids excite and fluster her. She's singing a song under her breath. In her husband's old sheepskin coat and her thickest shawl, she is warm. Her boots are almost new and strong. The basket bumps at her hip. She has never left the village, but soon she will catch them up. Soon she'll see the little king. Six. A neighbour took Babushka's livestock in. No penance, rich and creamy milk, fresh eggs. But the cat, black with a white bib and one white sock, with a law unto itself, wouldn't stay. Returned again and again to Babushka's yellow door, kept vigil, meowing for its mistress, left small oblations, half a mouse, a mangled chick, a shrew. When my grandma Mary died, her cats scratched and defecated on our beds. Her soft-eyed setter ran beneath a car. We were seven cousins and we were scared. We knew full well what love had left our world. Our parents sent us to the cinema or park while they cleared the house and nursed a complicated grief. We lingered, stayed out past dusk. What else can we do, the left behind, but circle the house in the violet hour and cry to be let in? 7. They were just here, the three wise men. You can smell them on the air, Hear them in the changes they have wrought in other people's voices, a sort of wonderment, the whisper of a son of God, also the trail of frozen dung. In the blizzard they are dimly apprehended, mounted and processional, always just a mile or two in front, their voices brought in shreds by the keen north wind, along with that whiff of frankincense and myrrh, Glimpsed, then gone. When the weather clears, nowhere to be seen. Eight. Time slows to honeyed gold in the steamed-up bathroom. You feel Babushka at your elbow and know not to turn. She hands you a warm towel for the bairn, helps you pat him down, guides his kicking toes into the pyjama feet, does the poppers up, tickles under his chin, laughs and snaps her gums while you brush his three front teeth. 
In the narrow bedroom, she turns round and round, singing klezmer, clicking her fingers and thumbs, while he rocks on all fours, almost crawling and roars. Then she climbs into bed alongside for the picture books and the evening feed, bubbling like a chicken or a happy kettle. Always, after a while, she is gone. You wish she would stay, with her knack for turning time indulgent and luxurious, forbidding the rush, the getting on, the next damn thing, the dishes slumped in the sour tub, the clothes to hang on the line. At the centre of it all, this yellow room, this fine and healthy sun. Nine. When you do not catch up. When you're always a step behind, walking in their footsteps like a child, trying to grab their apron strings, gleaning the gold of their just gone, you curse the wise men. An old woman should be warm at her hearth, not trekking in the night through snow and mud and sleet. An old woman should be home with her cat, not wading in the dark like a dog, scavenging for scraps. A curse on these old bones, never making speed. A curse on the wise men, with their fancy instruments and their camels and their fine-milled scented soap. And a curse on this addiction, call it hope that won't let you stop, though the way is hard and bitter cold and slow, and you are way past winter now, gone something beyond old and into myth or ghost. 10. Weather forecast. Cold front moving in from Siberia, north wind rising, bringing snow, temperatures dropping to minus 20, Chance of storm, chance of a bushka happed in a shawl. The camp is restless with sudden starts and terrors. No one can sleep for the cold. The stars are blown out, the low sky sullen with coming snow. Along the road a dark speck moves towards us. A donkey or a loose cow grazing. We stamp our feet, clap our mittened hands. Then before our eyes a crone, bundled up and toothless, carrying a basket of wooden flutes and dolls, babbling in a foreign language. The wire fence is whistling in the wind. Our superior is not here. It is after hours. We cannot let her in. She is all smiles. Her watery eyes seek mine. She pats my cheek smartly, a little too hard, and calls me by the name my mother gave me. Come, little bear, you're not going to make me climb that wire fence. And suddenly she's beyond and through the gate, ambling into the maze, then lost among the miles of tents. We shrug. What harm? And then the snow. Eleven. In the long rows of sleepers, in the body smell of sleepers who haven't been able to wash for months, in the breathing of restless sleepers, the refugees, the homeless, there are always infants, there are always nursing mothers. 
She leaves each what gift she can, then moves along. This is what she finds. Every mother's child is sacred. Every mother's child is Christ. 12. Was there ever anything that matched the gentle density of a sleeping babe, the calm, warm weight of it, pinning you down to the core of the world, which is love. When I carried Isla in her sling, I was endlessly approached by older women, with a penny for the bairn, wanting a wee peek, a little stroke. I remember most that grandma in the waiting room, who fondled Isla's tiny feet and spoke about a child who breathed a day before she died. Later there was a son who lived, is grown. But she carries that girl about her still, like a baby in a sling, that warm, persistent weight, that ache across the shoulders, the sore and open blossom of the heart. 13. One day, surely, Christ will turn and see you stumbling behind, like that summer long ago, when you lost yourself in the meadow, buttercups and grass high above your head, and could not find your mother. You scrambled about, panicking, adrift, until somehow you broke onto the path, and saw her far ahead, her broad familiar back, and started running after her, yelling, Don't go without me! And she turned at the sound of your voice, relief blazoned on her face, and ran and scooped you up and squeezed you hard. You threw your hands around her neck and buried your face in her familiar smell of salt and lavender and bread. And everything ran buttercup gold in the sunlit meadow, buttercup green as you wept. One day, surely, Christ will stop and gather you up. And there too, in his arms, will be your beloveds, mother, father, husband, blessed son, all the sacred children of the world slip through beyond. What a completely stunning reading. Thank you for that. I am so struck by the way in which you talk about old women in this poem or elderly women talking about the goddess of winter as a necessary and honored crone could you talk me through a little bit of your thinking around that well in the celtic myths there's this kind of power struggle between winter and spring spring is a young girl bride very determined she's got some of winter's fire and she comes and uh, Kaliach tries to hold her back but can't. So there's this kind of power struggle. But um, Kaliach, although she's kind of a kind of bad tempered <laughs> and uh, elemental, you know, she sends storms and gales to keep back spring. But she's also I think she's also this necessary cleansing. You know, without her, you don't get bride coming along with the spring. And um 
and also just um I just wanted to explore a bit that relationship between um children children and grandmothers which I think is actually can be a really important one I know my grandmas were really although they lived far away they were very important to me and I think I see that a lot in this village for example there's a lot of grandchildren um being brought up at least in part by grandmas and grandpas and I like that culturally I like that I like that kind of input I don't know and also just like I think our culture's so you know I've reached the age where I'm basically invisible <laughs> already um because our culture kind of tends to see women as as kind of sexual currency so once you're past that age our culture tends to ignore older women so you know I find that um films are always about younger people and you know art is often about younger women rather than older women and um you know even basic things like the models in magazines are always younger you know you kind of uh, women are my age uh, airbrushed out and even more so the older you get and I want to push back at that I think that's unacceptable and um, women are not sexual currency and shouldn't be seen that way at any age but should always be seen <laughs> in all their wonderful manifestations and I'm going to be a gloriously grumpy old crow <laughs> just gearing up to that golden opportunity yeah I'm so captivated by how you talk about grief and and longing that comes along with those relationships between um grandmothers and grandchildren and the line that keeps coming back to me is the what do we keep mm. well, yeah I think um well life is a process of loss in a lot of ways isn't it I'm afraid so yeah even you know inshallah my children are well but um don't tell them but I have a little stash of their teeth upstairs that the tooth fairy was meant to have taken <laughs> but they're in my cupboard <laughs> you know, like, um, I don't know they're always growing growing and changing and time never stays still and I guess my own grandmas that generation had a lot to deal with you know like uh, my grandma Benson had lost a daughter to meningitis just after the second world war so she'd managed to get her through the war and then overnight she died. She was gone overnight. And um, my other grandma, who I mentioned in the poem, Mary Bairstow, she um, she was orphaned by Spanish flu. So both her parents died in consecutive years for Spanish flu. And they just, you know, they have these sad stories, this kind of trauma. Um, and my grandma Mary, I remember as a kind of angelic woman, she was very kind and um, she had this white hair that I really want. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for it. It's going to come soon. Um, and I remember her take. I remember sharing a room with her when we stayed at her house, and her taking down her hair. She usually had it at a plait in a bun, and that just being a really magical moment of waking up and seeing her taking down her hair. And she had these animals, and she was just really loving and had a lot of kindness in her, even though she'd had this really traumatic childhood. You both talk so beautifully about the kind of care and dignity and tenderness that can exist within those domestic, this domestic space and within the work that's done there. I was wondering like, how you resonate with Babushka, I guess, Remy. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I kind of 
listening to the poem, I just felt it like unraveling before me. I had my eyes shut the whole way through and I just kind of let Fiona take me through. And I think there's a line about she, uh, the grandma who wouldn't leave her four walls and this kind of safety that she's built for herself. I think maybe with the, with the, um, was it teddy bears that she's got and that kind of childishness. I found that when you're talking about the, the father who doesn't want to see his his grandmother kind of re-embodying this childishness. I thought that was so interesting. And maybe it speaks to the way that there is this kind of kinship between grandparents and grandchildren in that they're kind of closer to each other. In fact, than parents, you know, they're both kind of, without sounding morbid, but they've come from, if we believe that they come from this other place and the young the young ones have come from there and the elder ones are going there. I think there's something really beautiful about the way that they're able to kind of bridge that gap and, yeah, speak to each other. Um, I found it really beautiful how you wove in your own story of your grandmothers and kind of shifted this, like, archetypal figure of Babushka into really personal ones. And you did that so kind of seamlessly that felt like the kind of the beating heart of the poem is when you're just leveling with us about your grandmother and the memories of her, I found that really beautiful. I think it's interesting that we've both picked, even though Babushka is kind of moving, we've both spoken a lot about kind of the home or the heart of relationships and something at the core of that. And I guess the fact that we're in isolation maybe has got something to do with what we're yearning for. <laughs> I thought it was really funny when I was, I hadn't even realised until I was reading and then I thought, oh, we've both used bathrooms. Like, yes. <laughs> this kind of exactly. private space where you can lock the door <laughs> and it's kind of warm and this kind of quite crowded bathrooms because you've got at least two people in them. Yeah, that's funny, that consonant. <laughs> Sadly, tragically, I feel like I will need to leave you both there in your respective bathrooms being tended to <laughs> by your respective mythical creatures. <laughs> Thank you so, so much to both of you, Fiona Benson and Remy Graves, for coming in, taking us through the wilds of water spirits and wandering grandmothers, and I've loved every bit of it. This has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny, and until next time, sweet dreams, and thanks for listening. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew, and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.